When you came here this morning, um, you were probably given a little bit of a, a survey uh, with your name, address on there, and everything like that. This is from the Creation Science Fellowship Group here right in Albuquerque, and I, I'm taking it that you can return it to their table out in the hallway. Uh, and then there's going to be a drawing later on for a free book or something like that. So if you want to fill that out and make sure uh, that they get that back, uh, get some of the resources. I would encourage you to look at the resources. Uh, some of the things that Mike even suggested looking at I think would be uh, probably helpful for youth groups, schools, etc., and parents. Um, here's one thought, and then I'm going to turn it over to Ray. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A time, okay, with Ray and Mike at the end. Uh, Ray's going to speak for a little while, and then uh, we'll take a little bit of a break, and then we'll close up our time together this morning by doing some Q&A. So I want you to be thinking about questions. If you hear something you don't quite understand, uh, if you have questions about something that maybe wasn't covered, all right, we want to give you the opportunity to, to ask questions and, uh, and just kind of interact in that way, okay? So think about it, write it down, and uh, maybe give it to your teachers, uh, if your students, and that way they can kind of speak for you, and then we can go from there. Sound good? All right, great. Ray, thank you for being here. Appreciate you. Thank you, Eric. Good morning. You all need to thank uh, Pastor Eric because every church in Albuquerque should do this. Put on something similar. It can be done on a smaller scale. Creation Science Fellowship is more than willing to visit your church and do something similar to what we're doing here. Now, I was a little bit concerned as I was listening to Mike. He was making everything simple. And I was thinking, well, I'm just going to fuzzy up everything and make everything more complicated. But as I heard the interaction, I realized you guys are a very sharp group, and you guys have a lot of background already, so I think this will fit right into where Mike left off. So we want to talk about today a particular issue, and the reason we want to do this, how many of you, uh, are there any... uh, Public school students here? Are there any public school? Not at all? A couple of them? Okay. How many of you know public school students? All right. Okay. Well, some of them are believers, but what they are experiencing in the public schools, they are being indoctrinated against virtually everything that we're talking about here. So you need to be a little sensitive to them and... Some of them may be even very aggressive, and they may even challenge you on these things. But I can assure you one thing. If you go to a public university, if you go to UNM or a school like UNM, New Mexico State, or some of the other state schools or out of state, everything that we're talking about is going to be presented like Mike said. They're going to oppose everything that we're talking about. They're going to give you a different religion, and it's a religion. Evolution is religious thought. It's not science. And Mike did a tremendous job of just demonstrating that there's no evidence that supports evolution. In fact, when I talk about evolution, the big point that I make is all the evidence that they produce or supply to you is superficial evidence. And all their arguments can be answered. And what we want to do is give some answers. And that's one of the things I want to do. A major area of debate in the world, basically, and even within the church, is this whole area of flood versus historical geology. Now, how many of you love geology or like studying geology? Okay, some of you, not too many of you. We're going to talk a little bit about geology. Now, I put historical geology because as believers, we don't have a big conflict with geology that is done in terms of the observational geology. Uh, Very little conflict. What we have a major conflict with is that whole area that's called historical geology because historical geology is an attempt from somewhat so-called science to reconstruct the ancient past, and particularly the geological layers and how did they come about and that sort of thing. We have a major problem with that whole area of geology. Not geology in general, historical geology. 
And the reason for that is in all of the textbooks that approach it from an evolutionary perspective, historical geology says there's no evidence for a Genesis flood. Zero evidence. And the churches have been intimidated with this, and they've come up with alternative explanations. And a very popular explanation you'll hear in the church that I don't think fits the evidence is, well, the church must have been, or the, uh, the uh, flood must have been in Mesopotamia, a lo- what's called a local flood. Well, I believe if you study the Bible, you'll come to the conclusion, if you look at the scriptural evidence, You can't get around the idea that this flood had to be tremendous. In fact, even if you know the information I'm going to share with you, you're still blown away by how massive that flood had to be. So the biblical evidence or scripture evidence is very clear that there had to have been a massive flood. So the question is, is there any scientific evidence? And what I'm going to present to you and I may not even finish this, but we'll see how far we get, is that there's overwhelming evidence, scientific evidence, that there was a worldwide or what is called a universal flood. Just a real quick summary of the Bible. The flood, the main reason for it is because of man's sin, and it's a judgment on the wicked. And what judgment is all about is God is separating out that which he loves from that that is destroying what he loves. So it's a judgment. And at the time before the flood, mankind was in deep sin, but there were believers. There was a family that God chose to preserve. So it is universal. It's a, it's a judgment on the wicked, on all of mankind, with the exception of two people. It involved nature. It involved the earth. So you ought to be able to see if there's evidence that is left behind as a result of the flood. I want to give you some of that evidence. It's also not only a a judgment, but it's that separating out. It's a deliverance of the righteous. And there was only one family on the face of the earth that was righteous, that God declared righteous and made righteous. So the flood, it's selective in that it separated out Noah's family. Okay, so that's the essence of the biblical evidence. And obviously it involved the animals, that's why you have the ark, because God wanted to preserve the animals for a new world. So that's the essence of it. So let's take a look in the rest of the time with the biblical, or the scientific evidence rather, the scientific evidence, and I hope uh, to show you in a short time that it's overwhelming support in spite of what you'll read in many of the textbooks, and in spite of what the world thinks, and in spite of what is taught on the university campus. So let's take a look at that. Before I get into it, I have to give you a little explanation as to a different view or a different interpretation of the same data. We as believers don't manipulate the data. We look at the same data that the unbeliever looks at. But because you're reconstructing something that took place in the past, just like like Mike pointed out, you have to ask the question, what are your assumptions? Remember that? I don't remember whose question that was, but (laughs) ask about the assumptions. And what we have here is a reconstruction of the data from an evolutionary perspective And this is the best that the world has been able to come up with. But it's got many assumptions. And what the chart is, it's very similar to the one that Mike showed you. It's a reconstruction of the geological layers that are out there. In other words, if you dig a hole outside of uh, the church here and you dig deep enough, you're going to find probably representative of some of these layers. Not all of them, but you'll find some of them. This is a reconstruction of what evolutionary geologists uh, picture in terms of what you can expect worldwide, and it's a composite. But to begin with, there's some things that you need to know about this in understanding what they're saying. First of all, there's problems with the 
geological column. And there's many of them. I'm just going to tell you a few of them. For one thing, nowhere on the face of the earth do you see all of those layers represented. Nowhere. And a study was done and by a believer, and he came up with, and he grouped some of them together, and even by grouping some of them together, uh, he came up with a 1% of the earth is representative of 10 of these. So this is theoretical. It's a theoretical chart based on assumptions, so it can be totally wrong. Now, I should backtrack. There's the Cambrian layer. See that uh, towards the bottom there? And then you have a pre-Cambrian. You know all about that already. You heard that last talk there. And notice there's a sharp line there. And notice also absence of fossils, uh, multicellular fossils. And then the Cambrian what? How did Mike describe it? Explosion. Because all of a sudden, you have all of these fossils of very complex creatures. And then the, the chart somewhat looks like an evolutionary scheme, but there's a better explanation. I won't have time to explain that as to why uh, it uh, fits the pattern that we have here. Well, on that study by a man by the wood, name of Wood Marapi, he comes up with less then 1% of the earth contains 10 of those layers that he selected. He grouped some of them together. I think there's 16 on that chart, so he grouped several of them together. And the white areas, how many can find white areas? Not, not the oceans, <laughs> but on the continent, there's only less than 1% all over the planet that uh, represent all 10 of the ones that he selected. And nowhere do you find all 16. Nowhere on the face of the earth. So it's very theoretical. Well, you can't quite tell because they're so small. There's some near the Himalayas. There's some in Poland. Uh, there's some in Cuba, but you can't even see them. They're so small. There's some in South America near the Andes. And he goes through a series of slides like these and portray some of the, the layers. So there's problems. It's theoretical. Secondly, it's based on evolution. So if evolution is a lie, that is a bad assumption. Already, you have uh, problems with it. Thirdly, in, uh, if you virtually look all over the world, about 66% of it, in other words, you have five layers or more missing. So it's not complete anywhere on the face of the earth. And this is just another shot of the Cambrian layer, just to give you a feel for where you can find the Cambrian layer. And that's the white portion. The dark portion, it's missing. So you can see that uh, much of the United States, if you dug below, you would be able to eventually reach the Cambrian layer. Okay? So this is a theoretical chart based on evolution with a lot of layers missing, and there's lots of problems. Another problem is sometimes they're out of order, which is a major problem for evolution, and they don't tell you that. But if you have an alternate explanation concerning the existence of the flood, there's two possibilities. You can have a little bit of water carving a canyon like the Grand Canyon, over lots of time, that's a simple way of describing the evolutionary model. Or what happens if you have catastrophic conditions? What, what happens if you have lots of water, doesn't take much time to dig a canyon? Okay, And I, we believe that the Grand Canyon was carved out very rapidly as a result of the after effects of the Genesis Flood. Now, a, the, uh, not every creationist believes this, but those of us that uh, believe in an inspired Bible and are more conservative believe that the Genesis flood essentially laid down all of the layers down to the Cambrian, and that boundary between the Cambrian and the Precambrian is the bottom of the destruction of the Genesis flood. Now, if you go to the Grand Canyon, that's about a mile deep, and you can see 
those layers that are represented. You can see the Cambrian layer in the Grand Canyon. In fact, look for it. Even though in most of the areas they'll give you an ex uh, evolutionary explanation. So here's the problem. If you start out with wrong assumptions, for example, if you start out with a presupposition or an assumption of evolution, if you start out with a, an assumption of long periods of time, millions of years, billions of years, you're going to see the same data and you're going to interpret that data from those glasses that you're wearing, in other words, those assumptions, and you're going to come to a particular conclusion, well, the earth must be very old because of the number of layers and based on present-day layering, it would take a long period of time to lay over a mile uh, deep of, of sediment. But if you start with a different set of assumptions, and we start with the scriptures, with the Bible, and the Bible has actually given us more data. It gives us more data to be able to look at. We're looking at the same data, but because we reject evolution, we can come with a different interpretation, and that's what I'm going to share with you today, okay? Now, what I'm going to present is a possible scenario that created the Genesis Flood. This was done by a geophysicist by the name of John Baumgartner. He used to live here in Albuquerque. He worked at Los Alamos, so he lived up in Los Alamos for many years. He's a world-class scientist, and he has a flood model, and I'm just basically summarizing it so that you can understand it. But uh, there's no scientist that disputes a few of these facts that I'm going to present. For example, if you took all of the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, removed the water, what would you find at the bottom? You'd find mountains. And if you were a good geologist, you could uh, investigate and study what produced those mountains. And uh, everyone acknowledges in the scientific community, particular geology, that there's what's called this mid-Atlantic ridge. And it goes from pole to pole, so it goes through all the Atlantic Ocean. There's a similar phenomenon in the Pacific Ocean as well. And what they believe produced that. In other words, can somebody suggest what might have produced that? What you have an idea? No, not, not the, the mountain. Another suggestion? Anyone else? Nope. Pardon me? Okay, uh, that's part of the answer. But if you evaluate those mountain ridges, they're volcanic. They're volcanic. So volcanic ash action produced this. So the theory here, or this model, is, is at the bottom of the ocean, you had the mantle swelling up such that it broke through at the bottom, and then you have lots of water, because this is ocean water, and if you have lava, like a volcano, that would come up, what would you expect when uh, that lava hits this water in the ocean? Not evaporated. Well, the lava cools, but what happens to the water? It begins to not so much evaporate, but uh, turn into more of a vapor form or produces steam. So this is kind of the key to understanding that. So this is kind of a slice of that mountain range, at least according to our interpretation of that data. So. As it uh, broke through, it had to go through the ocean, and it would send up into the sky just tremendous amount of, of steam, okay? And Genesis 7:11 7, says, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, the typical interpretation of that verse there uh, amongst Bible scholars has been that there must have been before the flood great reservoirs of water. And that certainly might be a possibility. But according to John Barbarder's model, if this occurred, then the fountains of the deep were not water fountains, but instead were, in fact, volcanic fountains that brought lava in contact with water, 
and thus produced tremendous amounts of steam that filled basically the whole planet with thick clouds, supersaturated it such that it would produce a storm of 40 days and 40 nights. And that set in motion a lot of other phenomenon that I won't explain, it's a little complicated, but you have much of the ocean floor that would be displaced and new material coming from the mantle and all of this action going, some continents what's called subducting or going down into the mantle. But you have massive changes all over the earth producing massive flooding that would overflood whatever continents or maybe even one continent that was there. Totally reshaping the face of the earth. This is that model. And he's done a lot of physics, geophysics, to kind of demonstrate this. A writer by the name of Stokes says the underlying cause of, uh, well, this leads to the next thing. There's a lot of things that took place after the Genesis flood. And since uh, Michael Ord, who was going to present, and I'm not sure exactly what he was going to say, but he was going to deal with the, uh, the Ice Age, and that's how it's been promoted here, so I thought I'd better touch on the Ice Age. <laughs> uh, Stokes says, concerning secular or unbelievers that have theories concerning what produced the Ice Age, and some theories say there have been many Ice Ages in the past, and what we observe in nature are just the remnants of, of the last one. Well, Stokes says, and he's a, uh, an expert in this area, he says, the underlying cause of glaciation remains in doubt. At least 29 explanations have been advanced to account for widespread glaciations, in other words, glaciers. Most of these had little chance of survival from the first, but others enjoyed some degree of success until they were rendered untenable by subsequent accumulated information. Now, from the last lecture, you could ask the same questions. They have a lot of assumptions, but the bottom line, uh, they don't know. <laughs> they really don't know. In other words, the secular word does not have an answer. Michael Ord, who was going to present today, but because of medical problems, he could not. He presents a possible way that the Ice Age started after the flood. It starts with a warmer ocean, and in his writing and in his talk, it doesn't take more than a few degrees of warming of the oceans. All right? And what did we just say on Baumgartner's model? You have hot lava exposed to water, what's that going to do to the oceans? It's going to warm them up. And it just takes just a little bit of a uh, few degrees. You have war water that's warmer, what's that going to produce? You can probably tell me that, You're, even those of you that are not climatologists. You got an answer? More clouds or more evaporation, more water vapor. If you have more water vapor in the atmosphere, what's that going to produce? More precipitation plus a more extensive clouding, which is going to produce cooler weather. So you're going to have more snow, and you're going to have colder summers. So the snow's not going to melt. And as a result of colder su uh, summers and colder winters as well, obviously, then that's going to produce glaciers. And that's exactly what has been observed. And you can see the remnants of glaciers in some places on, on the earth. And scientists believe that much of the United States was covered by glaciers. So the Ice Age can be explained by a, a Genesis flood, and particularly with this uh, Baumgartner model. Okay, well, in the time that I have remaining, let me zip through some of the evidence. And what I want to impress you with is there's an abundance, in fact, an overwhelming amount of evidence that supports a Genesis flood, all right? First of all, just fossils themselves, and I, I can go quickly through this because Mike did a good job of talking about fossils. Do fossils form today? Let me ask you that question. Yes? Okay. In abundance? Not in abundance. They possibly could occur, but they're very rare. You know why? 
Why do the fossils not form today? Takes catastrophic circumstances to produce a fossil. What happens when an organism dies? Does it fossilize? Nope. At least two things happen. Any suggestions? Decays, right? Starts to stink, right? What else happens? Scavengers eat it. So it doesn't fossilize. You have to have uh, rapid burial, rapid preservation. So just the existence of fossils themselves, and there's fossils in all of those layers above the Cambrian. And there's fossils all over the face of the earth. In fact, there are fossils on top of every mountain range. So we have worldwide fossils. So you had to have something catastrophic throughout the history of the laying down of those layers just to produce fossils. So just the existence of the fossils. So everywhere on the face of the earth, you have evidence for something at least catastrophic. And if you put all the evidence together, the conclusion you're driven to is there had to be something like a Genesis flood. All right? Well, Mike mentioned, well, I didn't, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, again, the geological column, you have fossils in every layer. And by the way, every layer above the Cambrian is different geologically from the layers below. The layers below we could call bedrock. The layers above are called sedimentary rock or sedimentary layers. You know the difference? Sedimentary layers were laid down. Now, the evolutionist has the theory they were laid down by wind and or water. They'll admit that water may have had action. But what we would propose is that all of those layers down to the Cambrian, including the Cambrian, were laid down by a massive flood over a short period of time, not long ages, and not certainly by many floods, but just one Genesis flood. And there are fossils in every one of those indicating that they, they were catastrophic. It was a catastrophic flood. All right? Okay. Just an example of a fossil. And Lamberts is an evolutionist, but he admits almost all of the fossils, by their very manner of perfect preservation, clearly show a sudden burial. Sudden burial. It's characteristic. So just the existence of fossils. Now, I'm going to skip over this. I was going to have some comments, but it'll leave some time for some other evidence. Mike covered fossil graveyards. And they're not isolated. Again, they are worldwide. What a fossil graveyard, just a review. In fact, one of you, we want to review. What is a fossil graveyard? Anyone? There's a good uh, middle schooler. Lots of fossils accumulated together. Some of them not living in the location where they died, where they died. So something catastrophic gathered those, those animals together, catastrophically covered them such that now they are fossilized. And those occur all over the world as well, worldwide. And just some examples, Mike gave you some examples. There's some in Siberia, Alaska, and I'm just showing just selected areas, Germany, the United States, and Wyoming, and I think he had some slides from Wyoming, uh, Utah, Colorado, and by the way, you could even include New Mexico, California, the point I'm making, worldwide. So this is not just an anomaly or just something that occurred one place. There's evidence worldwide. And again, this worldwide evidence gives evidence that something catastrophic occurred worldwide. That's why we speak of a universal flood. So the existence of fossils, the existence of fossil graveyards, and a very interesting particular kind of fossil, we call that polystrate fossils. Can somebody put together what the meaning of poly straight? Break it down. Poly is, means what? Many. Straight means probably related to a word similar to that. 
strata or layering. So polystrate, who can give me a definition of a polystrate fossil? A fossil that goes through many layers. Okay, and again, you can find these worldwide. Here's an example from Germany. Now, it's not a real clear photograph, but you have a layer that in reality is very clear, about a meter dip deep, and you have a fossil of a tree. So at least on the slide, there's at least uh, four layers that you can visibly look at. And this is not uncommon. And if these layers, I should have pointed out on that... Uh, theoretical chart, most of these layers, they believe were, it took millions of years to lay down each layer. Some of them 40 million, some of them 50 million. So here you have a, a meter, and then you have four layers. Is this, was this tree many millions of years old and endured all of this layering? That doesn't make sense at all, does it? It argues for something catastrophic, something fast, something rapid that these layers were all laid down. And again, this occurs all over the, the world. Here's uh, another example from Tennessee and John Baumgartner. And in fact, I think you have a coal layer at the bottom there. So you have different layers. And by the way, there's John Baumgartner uh, about 40 years ago. <laughs> so he found another one in Kentucky, another polystrate fossil. The point I'm making these are not isolated. These are worldwide. Most dinosaurs are polystrate fossils. Why? They're huge. They can't squeeze into one of those little layers a meter thick or two meters thick or even 80 feet thick. So most dinosaur fossils are, in fact, polystrate fossils as well. And there's lots of fossils in the fossil record. Just the existence of coal and oil, really, the secularist has no explanation for, well, they have an explanation, but it's not very good, concerning how coal was formed over long periods of time. Similarly with oil, a flood would gather up entire forests. And by the way, coal are just the remains of plant life, compressed and fossilized, basically. And a flood would accumulate entire forests, cover them over, seal them so that they would be compressed and compressed into coal. So a flood explains coal far better than the secular explanation. Similarly with oil, oil are the animal remains. So, and there's oil deposits all over the world. There's oil deposits all over the United States, all over, all over the world, not just the Middle East. In fact, they're discovering oil in Israel, which is an interesting phenomenon today. Uh, Baumgartner says, most coal was formed from plant material transported and buried by marine floodwaters, in other words, ocean floodwaters, rather than from plants which accumulated in places in swamps or peat bogs. That's the evolutionary explanation, the last part of that statement there. And he's a geophysicist. He's done all the research on it. So we have fossils, we have fossil graveyards, we have particular fossils called polystrate fossils, and coal and oil argue for a universal flood, and again, coal and oil all over the world. You also have sedimentation all over the world. There's not a place on the planet that does not have these layering. And in some places, like in the Grand Canyon, a mile thick of sediment. So sedimentation is just the accumulating of these layers, Sand, gravel, fossils, etc. That's what sedimentation is. And I'm going to give you some examples that, uh, from the Grand Canyon where you can see what the flood probably did. You have thick layers of water, and some of the estimates, hundreds of feet of water moving very rapidly. And you know what even uh, small floods can do. It can destroy everything in its path. Imagine a flood, a tsunami, basically. Imagine a tsunami overtaking continents, ripping up material, transporting it, in some cases, thousands of miles. And another talk that Mike was going to do is give you some of that evidence of layering that occurs as a result of 
what's happening here. And then as the waters slow down, redepositing, and this redepositing are those layers. All right? So we believe, at least this model, believes that all of the geological layers down to the Precambrian were laid down by the Genesis Flood because you don't find any fossils below that other than some uh, single cells, which you might expect, but nothing deep, okay? So it's redeposited. And then we also, in the flood model, believe that things took place after the flood. There's still, the earth is quite a bit in turmoil. You have a lot of volcanic action. You have tectonic forces. You have all kinds of geological things going on. And one of those things that's going on would be waters receding at rapid rates off of the continents. And we believe that the entire Grand Canyon was carved as a result of the after effects of the Genesis Flood. After the layering, then the canyon was carved out in a relatively short period of time. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's take a look at the Grand Canyon and quickly run through some evidence from the Grand Canyon. And I saw a lot of hands, a lot of you have visited, some of you have gone down uh, to the bottom. You have to be in shape, right? <laughs> but it's a fun thing. If you haven't gone, you might encourage your parents to take you so that you can see these layers. And I want you to pay attention when you do go, take a look at some of the layers that I'm going to show you here and some of this evidence, because you can look at the data. You can be a geologist for a day or two. And you can evaluate for yourself the evidence. It's there. It's overwhelming. And the reason I say it's overwhelming is because if all of those layers were laid down, then all of those layers are evidence of a Genesis flood. But the secularist can't see it because he can't see the forest for the trees. All right? Plus, remember, he has wrong assumptions that he starts with, and those assumptions drive what he is able to see in the data, and as a result, he interprets it differently. Well, let me give you some of the evidence. First of all, it's the Grand Canyon is about a mile deep, and in some places, it's about 18 miles across, so it's massive, huge, and it's over 277 miles long, just kind of give you a feel for the Grand Canyon if you haven't been there. Uh, if you're there. If you'd been there, you realize that it's, it's huge and it's impressive, very impressive. I think God has really given us a little picture so that we could see the data, that we could see the evidence, and it's spectacular. And when you look at the evidence, think about the Genesis flood and think about man's sin that caused the flood. So you have evidence of judgment you have evidence of what God can do and what he did do. And Jesus uses the Genesis flood as an example of what? In Matthew chapter 24, of a future judgment. That's why it's important that we share the good news with the unbeliever. But anyway, here's a kind of a sketch uh, of the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon is just on the right-hand side, just that small portion there. But you see the layering all the way into Utah, Bryce Canyon and all that. And in a longer talk, I will discuss each of these, but today I'm going to just very quickly look at some of them. The bottom area is the Cambrian layer. It's called a Tapetes layer. It's a different name, but it's a Cambrian layer. Everything below it is pre-Cambrian. Everything, including that Cambrian, or it's on the slide it says Tapetes, it was all laid down probably by, by water. And from that layer all the way to the top, you have fossils. And they're all over the world. Uh, not like it's on that chart, the, what's called the geological column, but you have representatives of these layers all over the world, and certainly right below us here today. Okay? Okay, here's the evidence. First of all, of something catastrophic, something unusual, geologists call this line of evidence folding. If you have layers, uh, in some cases, and you can see this, in fact, look for this. In fact, here's a photograph of folding. 
uh, I don't have a pointer here, but kind of in the center, you see kind of a curved series of layers there. See that curvature? That's folding. Now, geologists that analyze that, and towards the right and towards the bottom, just above the little tree there, you see the folding? See the curvature there? That's called folding. If you analyze it, and geologists will admit that uh, it had to have been folded when the rock was soft because you'd get a different kind of uh, deformation. You'd get a lot of cracking, and there's not cracking. So they will admit that that was produced when these layers were probably still soft. They call it plastic. So just the existence, and, and these are not unusual. You find this phenomenon all over the earth as well, but you can see it very vividly if you go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, here's a dramatic folding, and you can see even the different coloring. See how it goes from the top, then it dips down, and then it kind of goes up. This is a result of things taking place on the earth as the earth is trying to stabilize after this judgment. So in some places, th uh, layers are uh, moved upward and some are dropped down. But again, this folding is produced when those layers were soft. It would be display different characteristics, which tells us that uh, this didn't happen over long periods of time. It probably happened over a very short period of time giving evidence of a biblical time frame in terms of the Genesis flood. So you have folding, you have cross-bedding. This is kind of a, another area. Uh, here's an example, another photograph from John Baumgartner of cross-bedding. And the type of cross-bedding that you see at the Grand Canyon is the type of cross-bedding that you'll get when you have turbulent waters kind of stirring up these layers and stirring up material so that you have it at an angle. And the, the angle tells you that it's probably as a result of flood water, not wind. And again, you see this all over. You have these amphitheaters, what are called amphitheaters. In fact, they name them that because they look like an amphitheater where large portions of the canyon wall have been carved out. And if you analyze this geologically, a better explanation is not the erosion over long periods of time, but the erosion as a, ra as a rapid phenomenon. In other words, occurring very fast. Uh, do you know what an eddy in water is? In other words, you might have a river and you have a little kind of a whirlpool. You might find it on the edge. It might carve out a bank of even a small river. Uh, it's believed that on a large scale, from this model that uh, these amphitheaters may have been carved out. Here's an example of one where you have these rounded areas that were carved out. And at the bottom, if it was carved out over long periods of time, you would expect to see the evidence of that rock that was eroded and it's gone. There's no, there's no evidence of it. So it had to have been done rapidly. And then the water, as the, car, the canyon was being carved out, is transported somewhere else because it's not at the bottom of these amphitheaters. So that's a little bit evidence there. There's also what are called sharp boundaries. Sharp boundaries. Here's an example here. And if you walk the main trail, in fact, I took these photographs, all of these photographs, uh, just, just for you, just for today. <laughs> So I expended all that energy. I went down to the Grand Canyon just for you guys. See the difference between these two layers? And by the way, the lighter color layer is about 80 to 100 feet thick. And by the way, that uh, Coconino sandstone, that's the top layer there. It's that layer that is so prominent in the Grand Canyon, and you can see it for miles and miles. They call it over there the bathtub ring. So if you listen for that, you can identify that uh, rock layer. But what I want you to notice, see the arrow there, the, the top layer, and then there's another layer. Can't quite see it. Well, let me zoom in a little bit. Can't quite see it so well there, but you have Coconino sandstone, and then you have Shermit, or Hermit Shale below that. And here's a better photograph of it, close up. Look how sharp that boundary is. 
you have one kind of material on the top, and then you have a very different kind of material at the bottom. Now, if these layers were laid down over long periods of time, you would expect, you wouldn't expect a sharp boundary, you would expect some erosion in there. All right? But you see this very common. And I just use this example because it's so evident. And you can see the coloring and everything. You can see how sharp it is. But most of those layers all the way down are of this nature. You don't see transitions, if you will. But you do see what you would expect as floodwaters moved, material slowed down. Different kinds of material would settle at different rates, depending on the hydrodynamics of the water. It would settle, and you would be able to see clear lines dividing those layers. And you can see that today in a modern flood when material is transported and laid down. Okay? So you have uh, amphitheaters, you have sharp boundaries, and here's a neat one. And you want to look for this one when you go to the Grand Canyon. Look for what they call the Great Unconformity. Christians didn't name it that. Evolutionary geologist names it the Great Unconformity because that boundary is so different from what is above than that that is below. And this is where you want to look. Uh, the great unconformity would be that bottom area between that tapetes layer or Cambrian layer and the layer below. It is very dramatic. It is very evident. It's very easy to see. In fact, ask uh, if you have a guide or somebody, point out the great unconformity. If you can't remember uh, on the slide, that's it. So that's the boundary line between everything that the Genesis flood laid down to the very top and the, and the layers below that, all right? You see the bathtub ring up there? That's that Coconino sandstone. Sit towards the top there, that white layer. That's the bathtub ring. That's that layer that I showed you the photograph. So you don't have to go very far down into the canyon to see that boundary there. Take a photograph of it, show it to your geology friends, and tell them, here's evidence of the Genesis flood. You say there's no evidence, right here, I've got it. Closer up, and that's right there, and you can even see from that photograph a drastic difference between what's below and what's above. Again, everything above is what kind of rock? Sedimentary rock. In other words, it's a result of materials settling out, sediment. Okay, it's drastically different than from what's below. What's below is basement rock, basement rock of granite, schists, and what's above is sedimentary, limestone, sandstones, shale. These are geology terms, geology descriptions of the different kinds of layers and rocks. Drastically different. They call it the great unconformity because that is what it is. That great unconformity we are proposing is the boundary between the Genesis flood and what existed before the Genesis flood. So the flood would have ripped up material down to that layer, transported it thousands of miles, and then redeposited it in these layers. See that flood model? Just a close-up there. Notice the layering above. And notice even somewhat the orientation of the rocks are more vertical below than all the others are that way. It's very easy to pick out when you go to the Grand Canyon. Just to give you a feel for the Tapete sandstone layer, it covers most of the United States. So we're sitting on top of all of those layers, and particularly the Tapetes. And obviously the Grand Canyon is in Arizona. Okay, here's some really dramatic evidence. And it's almost like God said, hey, I'm going to give you Christians some evidence that you can look at in the 20th century. Now, some of you were not born in the last century like I was, but <laughs> so it's a little bit of history for you. But for some of us in the room, your, your teachers and your parents, they 
saw in the news something that God did on really a small scale in comparison to the whole earth, but from our little puny perspective, a pretty big event. How many of you have heard about Mount St. Helens? Okay. Some of you probably have been given some of this information. Very good. So well, let's talk about Mount St. Helens. That's the mountain before 1980. Now, notice that number. Who wants to remember that number? No, that's not the year. That's the... That's the 9,677. Who, who's, who, all right, remember that number, okay? 9,677. That means that the peak of that mountain is 9,677 feet above sea level, above Los Angeles, basically. What's the number? Very good. All right. Okay, on May 17th in 1980... And you got a guy there taking photographs and watching because days before in the uh, Washington area where Mount St. Helens is located, northeastern part of the United States, there was a tremors, there was some shaking, the mountain was acting up, uh, there would be occasional smoke come out of the mountain and people were expecting something to happen on Mount St. Helens. And in fact, the day before, this is not what the mountain looked like uh, months before, but see, there's a big bulge there. And this is the day before something really huge happened, the explosion of that mountain, basically. And I think what God was doing is, I'm going to show you what I can do so that it's very dramatic. You can see it, and you can share with your friends that uh, God can do whatever he says he's going to do, and if he can do that on a small scale, then why can't he do it on a larger scale worldwide? So he gave us an example here. That's May 17th, 1980. On the next day, May 18th, 1980, the mountain exploded. And physicists and geophysicists estimate that the energy that was released at that explosion was about one atomic bomb to kind of give you a feel. And if you know your history of World War II, we exploded two atomic bombs, one over Hiroshima and one over Nagasaki. So one atomic bomb exploding per second. And in World War II, it just wiped out two cities. That amount of energy, one atomic bomb per second over the eruption, which if you add it up, is about 30,000 atomic bombs exploding in the same place. Lots of energy was released. So that was a massive event from our perspective. From God's perspective, Mount St. Helens is just like a little pimple on the face of the earth. Just a little tiny pimple. But from our perspective, we're impressed with the amount of energy that's released. Okay, that's before Mount St. Helens. Photograph taken from a similar place. That's after. Before, after. Much of the mountain was just blown away. Blown away. In fact, after the event, the whole area almost looked, looked like a moonscape. It didn't look like it was planet Earth. It looked like it was some far-off moon or distant planet. The crater that was left, mile in diameter, and the new height, high point on the uh, mountain, 8,364. What was the number we were going to remember? 9,677. Over 1,000 feet was blown off. And they estimate 200 million cubic yards of material displaced. It damaged 250 square miles. So this was huge from our perspective. Just a little pimple from God's perspective. All right. The whole area, this was a lake that's up in that area. And in the background, there's Mount Rainier, 14,410, called Spirit Lake. 
Now, since 1980, geologists have been investigating this whole area because they knew what was there before, and now they know what can happen in a very short period of time. And let me show you what we can look at today. And in geology, there has arisen what is called flood geology that did not exist not many years ago. It was just all evolutionary geology. This flood geology is gathering evidence like this, uh, speaking in terms of catastrophic events in Earth history's past, and gives evidence for things like the Genesis flood. Just to compare Mount St. Helens, let me give you a photograph from, uh, and, and by the way, you can, look, you can find this, just go to Google Earth and zoom in to it. The damaged area is about 10 miles. I took that off the internet in 2012. Just shows the massive destruction there. Uh, see the Spirit Lake towards the top there, that black lake, lake up there, that's Spirit Lake. I'm gonna refer to that in a moment here. The volcano is there towards this, the, the, the bottom there. The red part is what's called pyroclastic flow deposits. It would have mud, debris, maybe a little lava, a few things like that, rocks. You have a lot of mud that is displaced, mud deposits. Notice there towards the center of slide, the North Fork Toodle River. Keep that in your mind there. And notice a lot of the debris deposited there, because I'm going to show you some slides of what was deposited there over a very rapid period of time, or a short period of time, rather. Okay? Uh, so keep that in mind. There's Spirit Lake, the blue there. Just to compare it, real close, close to Los Alamos, the Via Caldera, how many miles of that crater for Mount St. Helens? One mile. Something after the flood produced a lot of explosions of mountains after the Genesis flood. Uh, there's a 14-mile there's a crater. So there was a lot of activity going on close to the Genesis flood shortly after. Uh, Yellowstone, a 30-mile crater. It's not as distinct, but that gives you a feel for what God did probably after the Genesis flood. And I'll skip that slide. It takes too much explanation. Well, here's what happened as a result of that pimple on the face of the earth. We have rapid formation of erosion, very rapid, minutes. Not years, not millions of years, minutes. Okay? Lots of sedimentation, not millions of years, days, hours, really. Lots of layering is what we're talking about. Not only layering, but those la layers stratifying. And what that means, stratification, turn it into rock. So it's not just layers, but rock. Stratification. And here's an example of what was laid down. To give you perspective, there's a woman at the bottom there. But you have these distinct layers and geologists know that on May 18th, the day of the explosion of the, the, the mountain, lots of material was obviously blasted up into the air. So that bottom line there, that is the material that came back down in the area that uh, they're investigating there. And about 25 feet in about five hours... Uh, this is the next month after some phenomenon, rearranging the material up there, sedimentation, and then two years later, some more phenomenon layering on the top of it. That's the sedimentation and stratification that I talked about in the prior slide there. So all of that laid down very, very rapidly, short period of time. Now, if you didn't know that anything had happened at Mount St. Helens and you had a geology degree and your PhD and all that, and you went over there and, and you were asked, uh, well, estimate the time frame there. 
they would measure the depth and then calculate how much time it takes to lay down those layers. Well, it would take several million years. All right? That's what we do when we go to the Grand Canyon. Well, we just estimate several million years, 40 million years for the, this layer. Well, it can be done rapidly. And God gave us a glimpse as to what he could do. So we have rapid erosion, rapid sedimentation, stratification, log depo uh, deposition. Uh, we have the same phenomenon as those polystrate logs. Uh, they're still investigating. I haven't heard. They were looking to see if coal was formed as a result of Mount St. Helens. And here's an interesting thing that we'll conclude with is after the layers were laid down, we also had waters from Spirit Lake as a result of some of the, the aftershocks and shaking were released and it carved a canyon out. In fact, that photograph of those layers is, was taken uh, as a result of that canyon. It's in that canyon. That was the wall of that canyon. Remember the, the river that I told you, the North Fork Toodle River? Well, that's what it looked like after the mountain sent out all this debris and sedimentation. That's the top. Now, take a look at about where the K is on North Fork there. See where the K is? That's the top, and towards the right, what we're going to have is the same river, but see that peak there kind of towards the middle, towards the left side? That's where the, uh, the K on that fork was, so it shows the canyon. So in one day, virtually, a 140th scale Grand Canyon was formed. And geologists were able to watch this. They were able to observe it. So their assumption of long times basically done away with. The Grand Canyon could have been formed very rapidly over a very short period of time. 140th scale Grand Canyon. Okay, let's conclude. Implications. I hope I've given you lots of data. The evidence is overwhelming. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to shy away. You don't have to be afraid of science. Science is on our side. Who invented science? God did. All we're doing is what God created when we study science. All we're doing is investigating what God did and what God has done in terms of creating all things. So if somebody tells you there's no evidence for a Genesis flood, and by the way, this is just an example of Genesis flood. We could give you lots of evidence that there's no evidence for evolution, but there's a lot of evidence, physical evidence, that demonstrates there has to be an intelligent designer, and the Bible identifies that intelligent designer as God himself. So there has to be a creator based on scientific evidence. Don't be bullied. Don't be frightened. You may not be able to explain it all, but at least you have confidence that when the Word of God says certain things, you can believe the Bible. Now, you might think, well, why do people not believe with so overwhelming evidence? Well, it's a spiritual issue because if God is the creator of all things, then all men stand accountable to him. And men do not want to, and women do not want to stand accountable before a holy God because all of us have sinned and fallen short, and we're all guilty. So man, and particularly scientists, have to invent another explanation. And unfortunately, the world is composed of mainly unbelievers, and because we have mainly unbelievers, uh, we're given the impression that our viewpoint, which is a tiny minority, doesn't even exist. And all you hear about on a college campus or in a public school or with your friends interacting, wherever you hang out, is this idea that evolution is true, the earth is billions of years old, da 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 the whole evolutionary package. 
The reason is because people don't want to face a holy God. Secondly, if the flood is real or historical, if it actually happened, it's not once upon a time. And by the way, in the book of Genesis, the writer of Genesis gives us the exact day that the flood started and 370 days later to the day, he tells us when the flood was completed. So it was over a period of a year, the phenomenon that's described in Genesis 6 and 7. So if that is real, if it is historical, then all men must face God as judge. That's why men are forced to come up with a different explanation. But because we be, believe that the Bible is inspired and we can trust it, not only can we believe Genesis, but because Genesis is not only credible, but we have lots of evidence to support it, we can believe everything else that the Bible teaches. Thank you.